All right. Welcome, the elect, the elite. If you're looking around the room and you think there's four people here, welcome to Daylight Savings. That's the issue. This is the bad one. The good one's in the fall when you look around and everybody's here and they look rested, but today will be the opposite of that. Today we pay the piper, so. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class, uh, which actually feels like 8 a.m. Good to see you. Um, Today we're going to be talking about everybody's favorite topic, which is sin. Uh, I am kind of the subject matter expert uh, on this topic on staff. This is one of the doctrines, not that I know the best, but that I'm the best at practically. Uh, And so we'll be talking about sin. This semester, we've been going over anthropology, which is the doctrine of humanity. What does it mean to be human? Uh, We talked about uh, the dichotomous view, how humans are body and soul, but really we're seen as one whole unit. Your sin affects your body. Your body affects your emotions. They're all, you can't separate them like that. Uh, We talked about the essential nature of mankind. We talked about man as male and female uh, when we talked about complementarianism and gender and such. Uh, We talked about uh, marriage, divorce, sexuality. Those are all things that uh, humans deal with. And then we talked about some cultural hot topics when it comes to things like homosexuality, transgenderism, uh, et cetera. And then last week, Carl talked about a theology of children, a a childology, if you will. Uh, So we talked about that last time. Now, we're shifting gears a bit for the next, uh, I think, couple of weeks to talk about the doctrine of sin, okay? We talked about mankind and what mankind is made to be. Now we talk about sin, what's corrupted mankind. And then the rest of the semester, we'll talk about the beginnings of the idea of redemption. We'll talk about specifically God's covenants that He has given us to redeem. Almost all the divisions that are had amongst Protestants come from disagreements on how the covenants relate to one another. It comes from a disagreement on how do we relate the Old and the New Testament. So that should be really, really helpful. But before we get into the good stuff, the encouraging stuff, we got to talk about the bad stuff. It's kind of like where we are in Romans. For the last several weeks, we just keep beating down people in condemnation, but the gospel is coming. So hang in there. Today, the bad news. Let's talk about sin. The word sin comes from the Greek word hamartia. This is why this is called hamartiology, all right? Hamartiology is the doctrine of sin and the study of sin. Next week, Jeff will be diving down a little bit deeper into what is called total depravity. So that will be a good one. That's one of the uh, kind of doctrines of grace when we talk about tulip and reform theology and such. So that will be fun next week. But today we're going to give a general overview of sin, okay? Let me give you a definition. I have a little definition here that I think is very helpful if you will pause as we read it and kind of think through each of these points. Sin is any failure to conform to the moral law of God. Now look at these qualifiers. In act, thought, attitude, nature, or standing. Okay? That's what sin is. Sin is not merely acts that you do. Okay? Sin is any of these failures to conform to God's law. The fact that we're commanded, for example, to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength has a lot to do with our emotion, has a lot to do with our attitude, it has a lot to do with that. So let me go through each of these. If you commit a sinful action, you do an action that God has said not to do, that is sin. I think everybody agrees with that one. That one's not real controversial. If the Bible says not to murder and you murder, that's obvious. The Bible says not to steal, you steal, that is obvious. I can probably go to you and say, did you commit this action? And you can say yes or no. That one's easiest. That one's obvious. That one's easy. That one's obvious. The next ones are a little bit trickier, okay? It's also sin, though. You can sin in your thought life. You can have uh, lustful thoughts that you don't push away right away. You can have uh, envious thoughts. You can think of God incorrectly. Heresy, false thinking about God is sinful, Okay. You can sin in your attitude when the Bible tells you to do everything without grumbling or complaining and these kind of things, all right? When you're commanded to love others, when you're commanded to forgive, to not walk in bitterness, these are commands when it comes to uh, attitude. 
sin can be something related to your nature, that we are born into sin and our very nature is corrupted by sin because we are in the lineage of Adam, okay? We are in the lineage of Adam. What do you think it's like if you're Charles Manson's kids or Hitler's kids? It's not good because you had a bad dad. Well, all of us are linked to Adam in that sense, and so we are seen as sinful by nature. And then last one here, you can have a sinful standing, meaning in your position before God, we're seen as sinful because of the fall, okay? We're seen as sinful because of the fall. Now, I want to say this. This is really, really important, so everybody pay attention to this. Most of our sins as Christians are not external. They are internal. Most of our sins are not external. They are internal. How many sins have I committed today externally? Probably none. I didn't get up and, you know, uh, hit anybody. I didn't uh, flip anybody off on the way to church. I didn't do any of these things externally. But how many sins have I committed internally this morning? Probably hundreds. Anxieties, fears, not loving God, being bitter at somebody, being frustrated, being anxious, being worried. I mean, all these kind of things. So most of our sins are not external, they are internal, which means that when we're dealing with sin, you're always going to have to be questioning your heart. You're always going to have to be looking inside your heart. You're always going to have to be doing a little bit of introspection, okay? In the same way that most of our idols are not metal, they're mental, most of our sins are not external, they are internal, but you have to realize that or you will never see where you need grace. You will never see where you need forgiveness. If I'm sitting down in a community group and I'm asking people to go around and confess their sins, if you think that your sins are just external, it will be easy to be like, I've had a pretty good week. But if you realize that your sins are internal, most of them, you'll realize that uh, you actually sin probably a lot more than you think that you do. Now, another thing to mention here with this definition of sin, you can do a good action with a bad heart and sin, or you can do a bad action with a good heart and sin, okay? So action and heart does go together. Action and heart does go together. So if I'm helping my neighbor, let's say that there's an attractive lady across the street and I'm helping her, that action might look like a good action, but if deep down I'm trying to seduce her, God's not happy with that, okay? Just in case you didn't know, God's not happy with that. Now, conversely, there can be people that have a good motivation, but they do the wrong action, right? They do the wrong action. They could say something like, uh, let's say I'm a Hindu, and I want more people to become Hindu because I think that's the correct religion. My motivation is to try to lead people in the truth, but my action's wrong because that's not the truth. That's a false religion. You with me? So what's interesting is act and motivation do go together, and so we need to keep that in mind as well. Where did sin come from? Let's talk about where sin comes from. First of all, I need to say this. When we talked about evil, we had a whole class in here when it comes to God and evil. Uh, When we talked about evil, one of the things we said is that evil, and I would say sin is the same way, it's not a substance. It's not like it's a clump of stuff that God made. So he creates everything, and he's like, okay, this will be a mountain. It's beautiful. It's big. This will be a tree. This will be mankind. And here I'm going to make a clump of stuff called sin. It's like this swirling bubble of like dark black and redness, and that will be sin. That's not the case, okay? God doesn't create evil things or else he's an evil creator. What he does is he creates everything that's good, and sin is choosing less than God. It is deciding against what God has made. It is rejecting God and turning away from him. It is a privation. It is a negation. It is a negative of stuff. It's not a thing in and of itself. Even when the Bible talks about sin as like a power, it's not because sin is a thing. It's because sin has taken something that God has created like desire, and it's corrupted it. Or sin has taken something that God created like angels and corrupted them, and they become demons, okay? So sin is not a stuff. It's not like Adam and Eve are walking in the garden and they trip over a clump of sin. Rather, sin is when something good that God has created goes bad. It's where uh, there is a twisting and a turning and a distortion of what God has done. 
Okay? That's the idea of sin. So where did sin come from? Let's first of all talk about angelic rebellion. Let's talk about sin amongst angels, and then we will talk about sin amongst humans because the two are related. When we talked about the doctrine, uh, when, we, when we do this, when we were doing doctrine of God, we talked about angels, and we said that there are two intelligent beings that God has created. Okay? There's only one that bears God's image, humans, but there are two intelligent beings that God has created. The other ones are angels. Angels are intelligent moral beings that don't have a physical body whose job is to worship God, and they rebelled as well, and humans rebelled. So of the two things that God made that can think rationally, both of them rejected God. Okay? We don't have a great track record. We don't have a great track record. So first, let's talk about angelic rebellion. Okay? I want to give you two passages that refer specifically to the devil. Where do we get the idea in Scripture that the devil fell? We get it both from the Old Testament and the New Testament. I want to give you some passages here, first of all, the devil's rebellion. Now, these two passages I'm about to give you, in context, are talking about human kings, okay? They're talking about these pagan kings that are humans, but it's going to describe them in language that is a little bit too strong for just a human. Okay? I think what the prophets are doing when they're describing the king of Babylon and they're describing the king of Tyre is they're condemning them for their sin, and they're kind of saying this, your actions remind me of somebody. Hmm. Who else exalted themselves up? Who else lifted themselves up? Who else tried to make themselves uh, great like God? Your actions look very, very serpentine. And so what's going on, we're going to look at these first two passages, both in Isaiah and in Ezekiel, and we talked about this when we talked about uh, angels and demons, but uh, these passages are going to be condemning the kings of Tyre and Babylon from the Old Testament, but the language used is saying that there is something going on behind the scenes, that there is something demonic going on behind the scenes. In Jewish thinking, God had assigned angels to watch over the different nations. You also get this idea in Deuteronomy, by the way. So the idea is that, uh, that God watches over Israel. That's his chosen portion. But then he assigns angels over these other nations. In the fall, those angels become corrupted. And so what they do is they encourage the nations into evil. They encourage the nations into idolatry. That's Jewish theology behind it. And you see some of that here in Isaiah and Ezekiel. So let me read these. Isaiah 14, 13 through 15. This is written against the king of Babylon. But look at the language that's used. It's too strong for just a human king. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like who? Like the Most High. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. So it's condemning the king of Babylon, but it's saying what you're doing in your heart reminds me of somebody else that did the same thing in their heart, that said, you know what? I think I want to be like God. And look what happened. They were cast down. Ezekiel 28, 14 through 15. This is written against the king of Tyre. The same kind of language is used. You were an anointed guardian cherub. Okay, can that just be about the king of Tyre? No, it's calling him an angel. Okay, you were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God. In the midst of the stones of fire, you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. So the first thing that we're going to see about sin is it begins in the angelic realm. You have angels. Angels are not God. They're just created beings, and so they are not to exalt themselves. And what you have is you have one in particular who eventually is called Satan, Satan, right, or the Diabolos, the devil. And so uh, you have this one who's lifting up his heart saying, I want to be like God. I want to be like God. By the way, the nature of all of sin, whether it's angelic or human, is trying to be like God. You cannot be like God. You are not infinite. You are not Trinitarian. You are not all-knowing. You're not omnipresent. You are a creature, and God is not, Okay. So most of this, uh, or so all of this sin somehow is going to go back to that. But the first thing we see is that there's something going on way back in the past where some angelic being says, I think I want to be great. I think that I want to be like God. And they're cast down in both of these texts. 
But we also see this in the New Testament, 1 John 3, 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. Okay, notice that uh, sin begins there kind of with the devil. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of who? Of the devil. Okay, so you see that idea again in the New Testament. 2 Peter 2.4, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. I realize that that is not a full sentence. I just didn't want to keep putting the rest of the sentence there. But you get the point. The idea is that angels sin, they get cast down. There is no second chance for angels. Angels look upon humanity with almost like a holy jealousy. When they sin, they're just condemned. Jesus does not incarnate himself as an angel to save angels. He incarnates himself as a man to save humanity. And so you see here that there is angelic rebellion. So sin is not a clump of stuff God made. It's choosing less than God. It's rebelling against God. And you see the first beings to do that are angels. That's what we call demons, all right? A demon is an angel gone bad. It's an angel gone wild. It's an angel that's rebelled against God, okay? Now you see human rebellion. Notice that Adam and Eve don't merely sin. They are deceived into sinning. That doesn't make them not culpable. They are culpable for their sin. But notice that it began before them. Genesis 2, 15 through 17 says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Okay? So the origin of sin is in rebellion against God. It begins with angels, i.e. demons. And then it continues with humanity, okay? Continues with humanity. God does not create evil. He's sovereign over evil. He ordains evil, but he does not create evil or else he'd be an evil creator. Sin is taking something good that God has made and rejecting it, taking something good and twisting it, okay? Let me give you a cliche about sin that's absolutely true. Sin is fulfilling a God-given desire in a God-forbidden way. Sin is fulfilling a God-given desire in a God-forbidden way, Okay? So you have a God-given desire for sexuality, and it's sin when you don't fulfill that with your spouse, but you fulfill it in some other venue. You have a God-given desire to need food, but when instead of working for the food, you go steal, you've now fulfilled that God-given desire in a God-forbidden way. You have a desire to have honor, but when you try to exalt yourself up in pride and these kind of things, you're fulfilling it in a God-forbidden way. And you can pick any sin in your life. That's where that happens. You have a need for comfort, and instead of finding that in Christ, what you do is you end up creating idols and these kind of things. So all sin is fulfilling a God-given desire in a God-forbidden way. It's not that God doesn't want you to have good things. He wants you to have Him, and He's the best thing. And a lot of times what we do is we reject Him and we follow things that are lesser to find our joy in instead of God. Okay? Good so far? This is cheery, right? Condemnation, hell, demons. This is the most fun, all right? This is the most fun. You just wait for the sermon today. We get some more Romans too. Next. What is original sin? You ever heard the phrase original sin? A lot of people get confused on what original sin. It's not merely the fact that Adam sinned. It's this. It's the fact that we are born sinful because of Adam's sin, okay? Adam is an ambassador for mankind, all right? He's an ambassador for mankind. So let me give you an example. If I am an ambassador for the United States and I go to, I don't know, name a country, North Korea, you're welcome, okay? Let's say I'm an ambassador for the United States and I go to North Korea and I uh, go up to one of their representatives and I say, America, and I slap them in the face. What are they going to think of the rest of America? Not good things. Is everybody everybody with me? Is everybody awake or is it daylight saving time? I heard that there's no S, but I'm going to say that there's an S because everyone else says daylight saving time and language is conventional. Okay. So 
they're not going to like all of Americans. Now, here's the thing. Did you slap that official? No. Did you slap that official? Did you slap the official? No. But just because your ambassador slapped that official, that whole country is going to think negatively of your whole country. Are you with me? We as Americans tend to be very, very individualistic, and the Bible's not as individualistic as we are. And so the Bible sees Adam as being this federal head, as being this uh, representative, this ambassador for humanity. So what happens when the ambassador for humanity goes and metaphorically slaps God in the face through sin? What does God think of all humans? Bad stuff, okay? Bad stuff. Original sin is the fact that we are born sinful because of Adam's sin. His original sin links us into that sin. Let me give you a great quote by John Calvin. In defining original sin, he says this, A hereditary depravity and corruption of our nature diffused into all parts of the soul, which first makes us liable to God's wrath, then also brings forth in us those works which Scripture calls works of the flesh. Notice that we sin because we're sinners. We're not sinners because we sin. Notice that we are born broken and evil and sinful, and we are by nature sinners, and therefore that's why all the individual acts come up, not the other way around, okay? Not the other way around. So this is really, really important. When I'm sitting down and I'm dealing with counseling with somebody and they're going through some type of sin, some type of struggle, they think that the main problem is whatever that little sin is they're dealing with. That's not the main problem. And sometimes I have to say that. I have to say, listen, your problem is not alcoholism. Your problem is not pornography. Your problem is not this. Here's your problem. You are born God-hating and you want to be God like the devil does. Welcome to Parkway. But the solution... The solution is the gospel. In every, in every little individual sin we struggle with, which is kind of the symptom, the deeper root is that we're born with broken hearts. As we teach our kids here at Parkway, that we're born with sick hearts, hearts that are sick with sin, and that the only way to have those sick hearts healed is specifically through Christ, okay? Through Christ. Now, I want you to know when it comes to original sin, we are condemned both for having Adam as our representative and also for our own sin, okay? It's both. Yes, we are born sinful and broken. God demands that we be perfect and righteous. We cannot be perfect and righteous because we're already born sinful. So yes, there's a sense in which we're condemned for Adam's sin. But because we're born sinful, we willingly also commit our own sins and are condemned for those. It's not that we're just condemned for Adam's sin. I'm condemned for Adam's sin and also all the other billions of sins I've committed in my life and will continue to commit, okay? So notice that it is both. It is both, okay? Now, what are the results of sin? Let's talk about a few of these different results of sin. The first one is death. The first one is death. The day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now, that includes, originally, the idea is physical death, but it also includes the idea of spiritual death, separation from God. That's why, uh, you know, when Jesus says that those who know him won't taste death and these kind of things, it doesn't mean we won't die physically. The idea is that we won't have eternal separation from God. So death can be used in the Bible both as a kind of a metaphor for spiritual separation from God and also literal physical death, right? Literal physical death. And so we need to realize that sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. That's what it does, okay? So one of the results of sin is that we die physically, which is why the gospel brings about resurrection, which is the undoing of that sin. It's the uh, undoing of that death. You see, when Christ conquers sin on the cross, he conquers sin's ugly twin sister death at the resurrection. And so you see that. But also, sin brings about spiritual death that we are born spiritually dead to God, that we're by nature children of wrath. We'll be talking about more uh, this a little bit more when we get into uh, Romans 3. And therefore, we're born spiritually dead, and unless Christ saves us, we remain spiritually dead. And then we get eternal death, which is condemnation. There's something about sin that craves death. 
Someone's hurting, instead of loving Christ, they start doing meth, they do more and more and more until they die. Or they run into suicide, or they run into whatever. Sin leads to death, and so that's one of the results of sin. Okay? Number two, another result of sin is that there is separation between God and man. Okay? Separation between God and man. God, though He's infinite, holy, holy other, awesome, all these kind of things, He enjoys mankind. He enjoys fellowshipping with us. He loves us, despite the fact that we constantly rebel. And so what God wants is closeness with humanity. That's part of His gift. He's the best thing, and so the fact that we get to be a part of what He's doing is a gift. He's a sharing, loving God, and so we get that. But what happens in sin is you see that God and man become separated. You see, I've drawn this before, but I'll draw it again because I think it's a helpful little chart. You see heaven and earth separated. So in the Garden of Eden, there's a close fellowship between God and man. Okay? God's talking with Adam and these kind of things. So there's a sense in which you have heaven and earth, and they overlap. Heaven is on earth. In Eden, God's kingdom has come. His will has, be done, has been done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what you get with Adam and Eve. Okay? You get the realm of God, heaven, and the realm of man together. When there's sin committed, you now see these things separate. Okay? You see God withdraw His presence. God is holy. He will not tolerate sin. So you see God withdraw His presence. So now you have heaven and earth separate. But there are these little places where heaven and earth touch, right? So in the temple, the temple is a spot where heaven and earth touch. Though God's everywhere, you can especially feel His presence in the temple, okay? Heaven and earth, heaven is on earth where the temple is, but nowhere else, okay? There are these little places in the Old Testament, in a sense, where heaven and earth meet. The tabernacle, the temple, Christ tabernacles among us. That's a place where heaven and earth meet. Let me step on these cords. Thanks, Tim. Uh, it's a place where heaven and earth meet. The giving of the Spirit at Pentecost, that's a place where heaven and earth meet. This is, it represents earth. And then what do you get at the book of Revelation? You again get heaven and earth together again like you did in Eden. Okay? So the realm of God and the realm of man are together because God loves humans. When there's sin, they're separated. Okay? They're separated. But there are still these points where, uh, you know, one of the things that the uh, Ark of the Covenant is called in the Old Testament is God's footstool. God doesn't have feet. He doesn't have a body. But the image there is that it's like his holy feet touch down in the temple. That's the place where heaven kisses earth, where heaven touches earth. So you have that in the tabernacle, the temple. Christ is God dwelling among us. That's a place where heaven and earth meet. The giving of the Spirit at Pentecost is a place where heaven and earth meet. And then in the end of Revelation, you have heaven on earth. That's the idea, okay? That the dwelling place of God shall be with man, just like it was in Eden. That's the idea between that. But what happens because of sin is sin is what separates us from God. Sin is what separates heaven and earth, if you want to say it that way, okay? If somebody comes in here, they're assuming that I'm going to run like a post play against this football team or something uh, by that imagery. I don't know how helpful that is. I could have used colors or something. Some circles and some lines, everybody. So, another result of sin, bondage to Satan's kingdom. Bondage to Satan's kingdom. If you don't know the historic, orthodox, biblical God of the Bible, it's not as though you're free. It's not as though you belong to yourself. You belong to the devil. One of the things that we are told in Scripture in uh, the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul is told in preaching the gospel that people will be transferred from the dominion of darkness, i.e. the devil's kingdom, into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Okay? Into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. So sin enslaves us to the devil. If God is perfect and holy and we are not perfect and holy, it's not that we belong to nobody. We belong to somebody else who's not perfect and holy, and that's the devil. When Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, the devil comes to him and says, All these kingdoms are mine. Bow down. Don't go to the cross. Don't die for humanity. Bow down now and I'll give you a, a crown. The devil offers Jesus a, a crown without a cross. 
And that's not a false thing. I've heard pastors say, well, the devil has no charge over these kingdoms, so it's not really a temptation. Not only does that completely misunderstand the narrative, but the devil does have temporary authority over those things. Not rightful authority. They ultimately belong to God. But he has temporary authority over those things because humanity has sinned. Because humanity has sinned. And so he's offering Jesus a real temptation. That's why the devil is, quote, the prince of this world, the prince of the power of the air, etc. The god of this age. These are all titles for the devil. Number four, sin produces enmity, not only vertically, not only enmity between God and man, but it produces enmity horizontally, okay, between humans, between humans. You see this right after the fall in Genesis, you get the story of Cain and Abel, right? You have one person killing another person. And then the rest of Genesis, you see this human conflict. You have so much murder going on by the time of Noah, the world just has to be flooded, and we get this kind of second start with Adam is, or with Noah as kind of a second Adam. And so uh, it produces enmity between humans, okay? When the Bible talks about the importance of uh, you loving God, it'll also talk about the importance of you loving other people. What's the greatest command? Oh, man. It sounded like you were talking into a bowl of oatmeal. Like your face was in there and you answered that way. What is the greatest command? With, gus- with gumption. Yes, love God without everything. Heart, mind, soul, strength. What's the second? Notice that they go together. In sin, both of those relationships are broken. Okay? First John will say it stronger, that if you do not love your brother who you can see, you cannot love God whom you have not seen. So if someone says they love God, but they don't love other people, they don't love other Christians, they're not kind and warm and welcoming to other Christians and these kind of things, they don't love God. But I do. The Bible says you don't because you don't love these people that you can see, which is easier because you can see them. Then surely you don't love this being that you cannot see who's invisible. Number five, it produces enmity between men and women. Enmity between men and women. We don't recognize this a lot of times as much. So when we hear of a woman's march or we hear of uh, feminists fighting these groups and all these kind of things, we don't realize that that's a result of the fall, that men and women clash and fight each other because of the fall. Adam and Eve don't have any trouble before the fall. But what happens right after the fall? That your desire will be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, I'm not going to go into all of what that does and doesn't mean. That's a very tricky text. But here's what we can say that it means. There's some sort of conflict now that's introduced into the scenario. Before that, Adam and Eve were doing great. They were gardening together. Everything was good. There was no, how are you doing, honey? Fine. Are you really fine? Sure. Oh, no, this is bad. This is getting really bad. There was none of that, okay? But as soon as the fall happens, there's enmity. There's enmity. And since that time, men and women have been clashing. Husband and wives have been clashing. If you're wondering, man, I feel like I fight with my spouse all the time. You can thank sin for that, okay? That's part of what happens. That's part of what happens. When they sin, all these bad things are introduced into the world. There's shame. Whereas there used to be joy in sexuality, now there's shame. With Eve, there's body image issues. She's wondering if these fig leaves make her look fat, right? They're fighting each other. Instead of lovingly leading Eve, Adam now has this desire to dominate her in a non-godly way. Not to use his leadership to better her, but to use his leadership in a selfish way. And all men have been following in the path of Adam ever since. All women have been following in the path of Eve ever since. Sans Christ. Okay? Number six. Not only is there a division between God and man, not only is there a division between man and man, not only is there a division between man and woman, but there's also a division between mankind and the earth. Mankind and the earth. Part of the curse. So so what what was humanity commanded to do in Genesis with Adam and Eve? They were commanded to do two things. What were they? Yes, subdue the earth for God's glory. And what was the other one? Be fruitful and multiply. 
When they sin, guess what cursed is pronounced upon them? Curses that directly correspond to those two things. So when you try to subdue the earth, now it will bear thorns and thistles. Man was made to work. Work is not bad, but now work is laborious because of sin. So now when you try to garden, there's thorns and thistles and there's roots and all these other things and it's super difficult. Now when you try to drive into work, you got to fight traffic and then you got that weird boss and then you got to deal with that weird guy named something like, I don't give a name. I don't want that to accidentally be somebody else's name in here, who hangs out by the water cooler and wants to be your friend and you really don't want to be his friend. That's a thorn and thistle, okay? Whatever we try to do, no matter what our job is, even if we have great jobs, there are thorns and thistles. Why? Because the command is to subdue the earth for God's glory. The curse is now that will be harder to do. The other command is to be fruitful and multiply. And what is the curse placed on the woman? I will greatly increase your pain in childbearing. It will make that more difficult as well. It will make that more difficult as well. Okay? By the way, to want to suppress pain in childbearing is a good and righteous thing. I'm not going to get into any social or political things. I just want to say that pain in childbearing is not good or something that should be rejoiced in. It's something that should be fought against, according to the Bible. Okay? But notice that there is now enmity between me. The idea is, when, when the Bible says that we bear God's image, that doesn't mean we look like him. We talked about that. God's not a big uh, human or something with, like, uh, chest hair and these kind of things. What it means is that we do what God does. Okay? We're to rule. God rules over everything. And when he takes Adam and pulls him from the dirt, he says, I want you to make my name great here. I want you to rule over the earth. That's the idea. And so when Adam sins and rebels against God, the thing that Adam was made to rule over rebels against him. You see this kind of stuff in Genesis, that all creation groans, waiting for redemption. There's a sense in which as the trees creak and as storms swirl and as hurricanes come and kill thousands, it's meant to remind us the world is broken. If God made such a good world, why are there tornadoes? Why is there hail that damaged my roof a year ago and I'm still trying to get it fixed, but I can't because there's all these problems? And why, is there, why are there hurricanes? Why are there diseases? Why are there tsunamis that wipe out whole villages? Why are there earthquakes? Because that's meant to be a reminder, something's broken here. Something's broken here. When Adam and Eve sin, when mankind sins, the realm of mankind, what mankind was supposed to rule over, mankind's kingdom, rebels. Okay? Rebels. Number seven. The other results of sin are individual sins, okay? So here I wrote sin, capital S, leads to sins, plural. So part of the result of sin as a concept, sin as a whole, sin, capital S, coming into the world, is that it leads to all these other individual sins. I just put a few here, murder, rape, anger, racism, jealousy, anxiety, lust, etc. You could put a bunch of other things in this category. Uh, but again, there's capital sin. There's this idea of generic rebellion against God, and that's what leads to all these other little things. Again, your biggest problem is not whatever you think your individual sin is. Your biggest problem is ultimately rebellion against God in your heart. You, like Adam and Eve, want to be like God and get to determine what's good and evil. You don't like God telling you what's good and evil. You don't like God telling you what to do. I don't like God telling me what to do. I think that I should be God. God does a lot of things, and I'm like, I don't know if you know this or not, God, but I'm 31. I've been around a long time. And here's how you should have done it. That's what we do. And if that sounds ridiculous, you see how ridiculous our sin is. It's not just that God is smarter than you. He's infinitely smarter than you. God, like Chuck Norris, can count to infinity twice. Okay? It's not, he, how many languages do you know versus how many languages does God know? How high can you count versus how high can God count? All the days in eternity that we will ever live and all the songs we will ever sing, God knows all of those songs and all of those days now. You and God, it's not just that he's bigger and smarter than you. He is holy other. He is infinite. All right? infinite. So anytime we start to want to be God, there are shoes that are not just too big for us. They're shoes that keep on going. So we step into them and they just keep growing. We can't fill them. All right. We can't fill them. 
And then lastly, many other things that would fall under the title generically of brokenness. Okay? When you see something that's broken in the world, that is a result of sin. Cancer, rape, molestation, earthquakes, uh, wars, all these kind of things, that is a result of sin. Okay? Everybody good so far? Having lots of fun with sin? Okay. Now let's talk about some Catholic stuff. Okay? Why do we talk about Catholic stuff? Because for three-fourths of our history as Christians, it's been Catholic, though we are not Catholic. Here at uh, the Parkway Church, we are Protestant, Reformed, Baptist, and uh, evangelicals, and so, uh, but I want you to see this because this, this, a lot of times when the Reformers talk, they'll, com- they'll contrast it with Catholic theology because there's some things in Roman Catholicism that just seem to be naturally the way we think, and the Reformers have to correct that with Scripture. So I find that to be fascinating. But let me mention a few things. When it comes to sin... Uh, in Catholic theology, sin is divided into two classifications. I'm not going to write it on the board. You have it on your list. Jeff corrected me to say, don't write the stuff on the board they have on their list. So I won't. There are two kinds of sins when it comes to Roman Catholic doctrine. The first is called venial. Who knows what venial means? Carl joked this week that it's the opposite of arterial sin. Uh, like intravenous means vain. What does venial mean? Does anybody know? We don't use that word much. Well, what does the word mean? Yes, no, what, not, or what, not what are venial sins. What does the word venial mean? Yes, the word venial just means forgivable. It means pardonable, okay? We don't use that term much, but that's what the term means. It just means forgivable or pardonable sins. And uh, the other one is mortal sins. What does the word mortal a lot of times mean? So if it's mortal combat or it's a, uh, some type of mortal wound, it's not a flesh wound, it's a mortal wound. What, uh, what does that mean? It leads to death, right? Mortals die, okay? So in Roman Catholic thinking, there's venial sins and there's mortal sins, okay? Venial sins are basically not that big of deal sins, and mortal sins, there's no forgiveness for, okay? So venial sins, first of all, they have to be committed unintentionally, right? If you commit this sin, you do it unintentionally. You didn't mean to. You stubbed your toe. You were really mad. You said a curse word. That would be an example of a venial sin. Additionally, with venial sins, they don't turn you totally away from God's grace, okay? What does that mean in Catholic thinking? There are sins you can still commit while you're facing God, but there are sins you can commit that turn you away from God in Roman Catholic thinking, okay? So if you say a curse word and you still love Christ, you're still facing God. You're still receiving the grace. You're still on the right path. If you reject Christ, not only have you sinned, but you've also turned away from the very thing that can sanctify you. You with me? And so with venial sins, they're unintentional sins. They're sins that don't totally turn you away from God, and they're minor infractions, Okay? They're minor infractions. They're not things like murder. They're not things like adultery. They're, they're minor infractions. They're having a bad thought. They're saying inappropriate language. They're these kind of things. But in Roman Catholic thinking, there's also what are called mortal sins. Now, mortal sins are t- uh, typically ones that are committed intentionally. They're sins, as numbers would call it, with a high hand, okay? that where you're thinking through, I'm going to murder this person. I'm going to cheat on my wife. I'm going to rob this bank. They're sins that do turn you away from God, and they are major infractions. I gave the examples of murder and blasphemy here, okay? Here's a quote on these things from Thomas Aquinas. Who's Thomas Aquinas? Thomas Aquinas is the most influential Catholic theologian after St. Augustine. St. Augustine's the most influential theologian, period, Roman Catholic or Protestant. The next most influential one for Protestants is Luther. The next most influential one for Catholics is a guy named Thomas Aquinas, and he says this about venial and mortal sins. He who by sinning turns away from his last end, if we consider the nature of his sin, falls irreparably. Okay? And therefore is said to sin mortally and to deserve eternal punishment. 
But when a person sins without turning away from God, by the very nature of his sin, his disorder can be repaired because the principle of the order is not destroyed. What he's saying is there are some sins that so turn you away from God, you've cut yourself off from grace. There are other sins that you commit that uh, don't turn you away from God. You've still committed them. There's still a bump in the relationship, but you're still primarily facing God. Now, which of these two sins sounds crazy to you? The idea that sins are forgivable or the idea that uh, the venial sins are the mortal sins? Think about it for a second. Which of these do you mainly have a problem with? Don't say it out loud. Just think about it for a second. Typically, if I ask this question to a group of Protestants and I say, this little classification of venial sin and mortal sin, which one most bothers you? Typically, Protestants will say the idea of mortal sin bothers me. The idea of mortal sin, the idea that you could commit this sin that couldn't be forgiven, that's what most bothers me. Here's what's ironic. The Protestant reformers said the exact opposite. They said, what do you mean venial and mortal sins? All sins are mortal. It's not that all sins are venial. All sins lead to death. All sins cut you off from God. All sins turn you away from his presence, which is why your only hope is in the gospel. So what's interesting is we have a tendency to say mortal sins. That doesn't make any sense. Venial sins, that's really how we sin. The reformers say, no, it's the other way around. We don't ever commit venial sins. All of our sins cut us off from God. All of our sins cut us, deserve wrath, okay? So I find that to be interesting, okay? Now, let me just give you a summary. I tell you that just so you'll know. Here's all I'm trying to say. Any sin that you commit can be forgiven by God, period. We'll talk about what blasphemy against the Spirit is in a second. That's the only one the Bible says you can't be forgiven from. We'll talk about what that means. Every sin you commit can be covered by the blood of Christ. Can I get an amen? Amen. But that doesn't mean we need to treat sin lightly. We need to realize sin by its very nature is satanic. Sin by its very nature is serpentine. God is never asking you to sin. He's never asking you to sin a little bit. He's never asking you to sin so that you might do something good. Okay? So we need to realize sin is never right. Sin is never right. Okay? Next, is a Christian a sinner? Is a Christian a sinner? I highly recommend that you go online later and on our blogs, uh, on our website, that you read the article titled, Is a Christian a Sinner? Okay? Let me summarize this. If I ask the room, is a Christian a sinner? Some people will say, well, of course we're sinners. We sin all the time. Other people will say, no, we're not sinners. That's not our identity. We're adopted children of God. So are Christian sinners? Here's my answer. Yes and no. It depends on what you mean. Do we still, even post-conversion, commit sin all the time? Absolutely. If you in here don't think you ever sin, you hold a view of salvation that we don't hold here at Parkway. We don't believe in Christian perfectionism, that this side of eternity, you just never sin, you never struggle again. Okay? But here's what you do need to know. Your status is no longer a sinner if you're a Christian. The way that God sees you is no longer with the title sinner, but with the title saint. Saint, a hagios is the Greek word. A holy one, a set-apart one, a saint. So before you were a Christian, did you commit sinful acts? Yes. What was your title, though? What was your identity? How did God see you? Sinner. So my business card before I knew Christ was Zach Lee, a sinner, okay? That's what it said on there. Like a lawyer would have it, a sinner. In salvation, is it true that I still commit sins on a day-to-day basis? Yes. But here's what you need to realize. My identity is no longer as a sinner, but as 100% righteous, perfect, loved by God. I am seen as holy as Christ, as holy as Christ, There was this popular phrase that Luther had during the Reformation, that humans are, that know Christ, that Christians are, simul justus et peccator, which means simultaneously justified and a sinner. Yes, in our day-to-day lives, we still practically sin, but our identity in God's eyes is that we are clean, that he has separated our sins as far as the east is from the west. And so my question for you on this is, do you realize that your identity, your standing before God, 
is 100% perfect, that you are righteous. Not just pretty good, not just forgivable, but that you are 100% righteous like Christ is righteous because you're in him by faith. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Next, this is a good little juicy one. Are there different levels of sin? Are all sins equal? Are all sins equal? One of the things you'll hear if you grow up, especially in a Baptist church, for whatever reason, is you will have somebody get up typically and they will say, all sins are equal. Murdering somebody is like stealing a cookie and these kind of things. I don't hold that because I don't think the Bible holds that. Okay, Let me explain. I think the answer to are all sins equal, yes and no, depending on what you mean. Let me just give you some examples of where all sins are not seen as equal, that some sins are more offensive to God. Some sins are worse, not only in their results, but worse in and of themselves. Let me give you a few passages. In John 19, 11, Jesus says to Pilate, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Notice that Jesus here says that this sin is greater than what he's doing with Pilate. Okay, he who handed me over to you has a greater sin. He's more culpable. What he has done is worse. In Ezekiel 8, 6, Ezekiel is told, but you will see still greater abominations than this, talking about defiling the temple, rebelling against God, etc. And angel tells Ezekiel, you're going to see worse sins. You're going to see things that are more offensive to God. In Matthew 5, 19, Jesus rebukes anyone who, quote, relaxes one of the least of these commandments. This verse seems to say that some commands are lighter, while some other commands are weightier, okay? In Numbers 15, the Bible contrasts sin done unintentionally with sin done, quote, with a high hand, right? So if you commit a sin accidentally, that's not as bad as if you do it like this. Oh, yeah, God, I'll show you where you're shaking your fist at the sky. That one's seen as worse, okay? Additionally, unrepentant sin is worse than repentant sin. Unrepentant sin is worse than, I'm sorry, unrepentant sins are worse than repentant sins, okay? So if somebody comes up to the church and they say, I struggle with same-sex attraction, occasionally I have fallen into actually committing same-sex acts, I've committed homosexual acts, but I hate my sin, I'm repenting, I do love Jesus, I just need help, we would say, welcome, brother or sister, okay? But if they come in and they say, I'm drawn, I'm same-sex attracted, and I'm just going to keep doing it because it's who I am and I don't care what the Bible says, then we have to say, well, that's different then. That's not you loving Christ and fighting sin. That's you saying, I love my sin more than Christ. Those are different. So unrepentant sin is worse than repentant sin. So are all sins equal in the sense that some are not more offensive to God? No. There are some sins that are more offensive to God. There are some that are worse. I heard a guy one time I was debating with who uh, he only voted for pro-choice candidates, and here was his reason because if all sins are equal, then abortion is the same bad as greed. Now, one, I think he's misdefining greed, but that was his point. And he, you realize if you hold this view, then someone who cheats on their wife has not done something as bad as when you stub your toe and say a curse word. Okay? Now, what do people mean, though, when they say all sins in a sense are equal? There is a sense in which all sins are equal. And I mean two things by that. Here's the first one. All sin is rebellion against God, and all sin gets God's disfavor. So when you murder somebody, you are under God's displeasure. When you steal a cookie, you are under God's displeasure. So there is a sense in which all sins are equal because all sin is evil and all sin separates you from God. Okay? Now here's the second thing I want to say. There's another sense in which all sins are equal and that they're equally covered by the blood of Christ. They're equally covered by the blood of Christ. There is a tendency to feel like some sins that we have in our life are not as easily covered by Jesus' death as others. So if Jesus' blood is oxyclean, we have a tendency to think that some sins he's really having to scrub. He's scrubbing and there's still kind of this residue and you can still kind of see the sin. No, his blood equally covers everyone's sin. So are all sins equal? No, in the sense that some sins biblically are said to be worse than others. They're more offensive to God. They're committed with a worse heart. They're unrepentant. 
But yes, in the sense that all sins make you a sinner. Yes, in the sense that all sins are rebellion against God. Yes, in the sense that all can be equally forgiven by God. Okay? Now, we have about three minutes to run through seven things about sin. So I'm just going to talk really fast, and then Jeff can come up and uh, clarify everything. Number one, is there a, quote, age of accountability? Is there a, quote, age of accountability? The idea of an age of accountability is that a child is seen as not sinful at all until they're old enough to know that what they're doing is sinful. The Bible does not hold an age of accountability. David sees himself as sinful from his mother's womb. The Bible says that we're by nature children of wrath. David says in Psalm 51 that in sin did his mom conceive him. Okay? It's not talking about his mom's sin. In, in context, in Psalm 51, he's talking about his sin with Bathsheba. He's saying, I've been a sinner from the womb. So children are not innocent of sin. They're born with sin. Does that mean that babies go to hell? No. If God saves a child, it's because of God's grace, though, not because of their innocence. Let me say that again. It's not that children are innocent until they're old enough to know the rules. If that were the case, we should just never teach them the rules. That way, they'd never be condemned. Rather, it's that they're sinful from birth, but that doesn't mean that God can't show them grace. How does God save an infant? The same way He would save us, by showing us grace. Not because we're innocent, but because He's gracious. Okay, if you want more info on that, Jeff has an article. Is it online, Jeff? Is it on the blog? It's one of our more read things, the Where Do Babies Go When They Die? Yeah, there's an article we have about where do babies go when they die, and it's one of our most read blogs. It's very well done. It'll very much encourage you, if you're a parent perhaps that has lost a child or gone through a miscarriage or something, highly encourage you to check that out. Number two, what is the unpardonable sin? Jesus says that all sins will be forgiven man except for blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. People think blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is all kind of things. Here's what I think that it is. In context, Jesus is healing people, and the Pharisees, they come up and they say that the only way that Jesus is able to heal people is by the power of Satan. So you clearly have a work of the Spirit. People are being forgiven. They're being saved. They're being healed. And the Pharisees don't come up and worship Jesus like they should. They knowingly, intentionally, and repeatedly attribute that to the devil instead of Christ. And so what Jesus is basically saying is, you guys are about to step over a line. I get that you're hard-hearted. I get that you're sinful. But I just healed this person. And you're saying that the devil did that. That's, that's the thing. I think what he's doing is he's addressing the Pharisee's heart and he's saying, you guys are about to step over a line the way you can't come back from. You need to watch it. I think that's his point. Okay? So I don't think that if you're, if you're somebody who's worried that you've committed this sin, but you love Christ, the fact that you're worried about it and you love Christ and you're not con- consistently attributing his works to the devil is evidence that you haven't committed it. Okay? So be encouraged. Okay? Be encouraged. We, talked, we already addressed this issue when we talked about... Uh, uh, the Holy Spirit on that lesson. So if you want more info on that, we address that in that lecture that's online. For time's sake, I'm going to keep going. Number three, how is it fair that we are counted sinful because of Adam? Okay, this is a common objection. If Adam sins and we're all connected to that, why does God judge me for being born sinful when God had me born in the line of Adam? I didn't have a choice. I had to be born sinful. A few comments on that. Number one, Adam represents a larger people group than just himself. We talked about that. He's like our ambassador. Number two, we are all physically, we would say today genetically, that's how we think of it, genetically linked to Adam. If everybody comes from the same couple, then we are in the loins, if you want to say it that way, of Adam. We are genetically linked to Adam. Okay, so it's not just that he's our ambassador, he's our dad. He's our great, 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 grandfather, right? I don't know how many greats that is. Don't hold me to that. You're like, what? You only believe the earth is 500 years old? No, okay. Uh, number three, all humans rebelled against God in Genesis 3. I think a lot of people don't think about this. How many humans were there in the first part of Genesis? Very first part, first two chapters. 
How many humans are there? How many of those humans ate of the fruit and rebelled against God? All humanity. All humanity rebelled against God, okay? Next, we are also condemned for our own sin. It's not just that we're condemned for Adam's sin. We also sin willingly. It's not just that I stand before God in judgment and he says, are you the line of Adam? Yeah, you're toast. He says, did you have lustful thoughts? Yeah. Did you do this in college? Yeah. Did you steal this when you shouldn't? Yeah. Did you love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength all the time? No. Okay, so we're judged also for our own sins. And then lastly, if it is unfair that we are counted sinful in Adam, then it also is unfair that we're counted righteous in Christ. So if you want to say, it's not fair that I'm linked to Adam, well, then it's also not fair that you're linked to Christ. Your condemnation is through election, and your salvation is through election. It all goes back to God's sovereign choice anyway. Next, number four, what happens when a believer sins? Why do we repent post-conversion? Here's the best way I can give this to you. When we first repent and trust in Christ, our status changes. We go from sinner to saint. We go from belonging to the devil to belonging to Christ. We go from God's enemy to God's adopted child. That's what happens when we initially repent and trust in Christ. Why then do we repent post-conversion? It's not because God doesn't love us or we've lost our status. It's because we're simply repairing an ongoing relationship. So here's the example. When I get into a fight with my wife, which happens, which happens, okay? At any point during that fight, do we cease being married? At any point during that fight, are we no longer husband and wife? Her last name is no longer Lee? Anything like that? No. If you're wondering, maybe. No, the answer is no. At no point during that fight do we cease being married. Okay? But what do I have to do after the fight? I have to come and I have to repent. I have to say, dearest Katie, I I have sinned against thee and I have to repent. Right? Why am I repenting? Not because she doesn't love me. Not because there's no relationship there. But because that rift has caused a little speed bump in our relationship. And what we want to do is we want to be able to grow and flourish, okay? So when you sin against God, at no point does he divorce you. At no point does he put you back up for adoption. At no point does he stop loving you. At no point does he stop caring for you. So why do we repent post-conversion in the same way? To say, God, though your love for me hasn't changed, I confess that in my sin, my love for you has. And so I need you to forgive me. I need you to help me. The difference is when there's a bump in the relationship between us and God, we are always the, the party at fault, not God. 99% of the time it's my fault, but 1% of the time it's Katie's fault. That's not the case with God. It's not the case with God. Uh, Number five, if sin is irrational, why do we do it? Because sin makes you stupid, okay? God is completely logical. He sees all black things as black. He sees all white things as white. God has never had a contradictory thought. God sees all truth as truth all the time and always has. There's no confusion in his mind of what's right, what's wrong, period. He knows all things, okay? He knows all things, God is part of his attributes when we say that he's loving and he's, he has a saity and he's omnipresent. We start naming off his attributes. Here's one of the attributes of God. He is completely logically consistent. He's logical, okay, to say it that way. Now, that means that sin is not. Sin is irrational. Was it wise for the devil to rebel against God when he's like, hey, I'm just a created being. Maybe I can take this infinite being. Is that smart? No. Why? Because sin makes you dumb. Sin corrupts your mind. When you're walking in sin, things seem like a good idea that everyone else realizes that's not a good idea. So if you've ever asked yourself, why does this person keep going back to drugs? Why does this person keep doing this? Why does this person that struggles with alcoholism keep running back to it? Because sin affects your mind. Sin makes you not think clearly. God is logical. God is uh, consistent. Sin is inconsistent and not logical. Okay? Number six, is sin personal or is it social? It is both. I'm not going to get into a whole big thing about social stuff right now, but sin is both personal and social. You have personal sin between you and God, but you also have sin that affects other people. It affects the culture around you. 
okay? It affects the culture. But it is both. There are some churches that would like to act that sin is just personal. There are other churches that would like to act that sin is just social. What I'd say biblically is that sin is both personal and social, and so it needs to be addressed on both levels. Now, how it's addressed, people disagree, but just keep that in mind, that sin is both personal and social. There are times where God judges a church in the New Testament for sinners in their midst, okay? There are times where God judges a nation because there are sinners in them. There are times when God judges Israel because one of the people of Israel won't destroy all the things they're told to destroy, but rather they keep a little bit of it in their tent, and God judges the whole nation. So God sees us as in more corporate terms than we have a tendency to see ourselves. And then lastly, is temptation sin? Is temptation sin? It's not. Let me, let me say this. This will really encourage you. I have a tendency to think that just because I'm tempted towards something, God must be mad at me, and I must really be this awful person. Okay? It's only sin when you sin. If you're tempted towards it and you say no, you push those thoughts out or whatever it is, you've not sinned. We have a tendency to say this. Okay, I'm really tempted towards this evil thing. If I just didn't have such an evil, bad, wicked heart, then I wouldn't even be tempted towards it. Is that true of Jesus, who's tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin? Does it come from his bad, evil, wicked heart? No, he doesn't have a wicked heart. Temptation is not sin. So if you're tempted to cheat on your wife and you say, you know what, I'm going to push that thought out and I'm not going to do it. You're righteous. You're walking in holiness. To quote Martin Luther, when he's talking about impure thoughts, he says, you can't stop a bird from landing on your head, but you can stop it from making a nest in your hair, okay? Thoughts will hit you. Temptations will hit you. You'll have certain desires that are not righteous, but if you push those out and don't dwell on them, don't give in to them, don't play out those fantasies or whatever in your mind, you've not sinned. So we have a tendency, I've realized, to beat ourselves up even for being tempted. If you're tempted towards something, but you say no, you're not being fake, you're being righteous. You're being righteous. Lastly, and Jeff, if you want to go ahead and start making your way up here, here's what I want to say. Christians on this issue typically fall into two categories. So which one are you in this morning? Most Christians either focus just on the grace of the gospel or they focus on how sinful they are. Very few do a good job of doing both. So some of you in here realize that you're a sinner. You realize that you're broken and dirty and your desires are not what they should be and you rebel against God all the time. For you, I'm not asking you to lower your view of sin. I'm asking you to raise your view of grace. You need to realize that no matter how depraved you are, God loves you, you're forgiven, you're perfect in Christ. Okay? But there are others of you in here who realize your union with Christ. You realize you're, you're one with Christ, you're perfect, you're righteous, and so you may have a tendency, though, not to realize all the sin that still lives in your heart. Okay? And so you'll have a tendency, if you don't realize how broken and wicked you are, you won't realize how much grace you've been given. You have to realize both. In my actions, I'm still super wicked. Because of God's grace, I'm seen as super righteous. You have to hold both of those. As Tim Keller says, you are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, and you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope, all at the same time, okay? So which one of those do you err on? Do you have a tendency of having a good view of God's grace, but you don't have a high enough view of how deceptive and wicked your heart is? Or do you have a view where you realize how awful you are, and therefore you never rest in God's grace? You have to hold both. I, Zach Lee, am deplorable of an, in and of myself, and in Christ, I, Zach Lee, am perfect. Simul Eustis et peccator. Simultaneously, simultaneously justified and a sinner.